Welcome to the Deep Waters Podcast. We pray that Christ is at the beginning and end of all we do. May openness and peace mark our conversations. As we engage in conversations about the fresh move of God, may our hearts be drawn to unity. And in all things, may this shape us to look more like Jesus. Amen. Now snag some peppermint tea in your favorite mug and enjoy the Deep Waters Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Deep Waters Podcast. My name is Benjamin Olson. And my name is Jace Langley. And we're here with you today to talk about what it means to be Christian from a theological standpoint. I think in our first episode, we talked really briefly about, well, we mentioned that we are a Christian church, Riverhouse. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think it would be fun someday to talk about what it means to be Christian and like where the boundary lines are, where in your theology you exit Christianity and now are something else. Yeah. Um, so I thought that we could just take some time to define theology and terms from a 30,000 foot view. And this will be good. Yeah. I this, think is, be fun. this is Benji's bread and butter. So. <laughs> I'm just here to to ask all the questions <laughs> that I'll have surely. <laughs> I really do love this stuff. No, I think it's going to be so good. Do you want me to read this uh, verse? Yes, and maybe just to preface the verse, mm-hmm. I'll say that people doing theology sometimes get really heady. I don't know if you, listener, are aware of that, if you've ever read some dogmatic theology or systematic theology from some Bible nerd uh, typically there's these big systems and structures and you're talking about Christology and then you get into these weeds and you ask yourself, wait, why am I even talking about that? And the word Christology doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. And uh, like, have I gone so deep into the weeds of theology that I have kind of lost the main thing? Hmm. Um, not that Christology isn't an important conversation, because it is. And if you don't know what that means, it's just the study of the nature of Jesus. Um, but I thought this Bible verse from 1 Corinthians 3 would be a really good anchoring scripture to remind us what the main thing is. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians three ten through 11 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. And Jesus Christ is our firm foundation, the rock on whom we stand. I mean, I feel like if this whole podcast could be boiled down to one thing, in its most simplest form, it would be Jesus. That's, I think it. Anyway, thank you for tuning into this week's podcast. We have church on Sundays and (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, there's a lot into that and that's what we're going to get into because the thing is about the world is there's other religions that claim Jesus to claim to know Jesus, Mm -hmm. whether as God or prophet. And so where we say Jesus is 
the one thing in it all, we do need some definition so that we know where Christianity begins and ends from a theological standpoint. That was well said. Absolutely. Um, One of my favorite theologians and arguably one of the greatest theologians in church history is this Swiss guy named Karl Barth. It looks like Barth, but it's a hard T. So if you're ever reading his name. I love a nice warm Barth. Get Don't the we bu- all? Gubble, bu- I can't, the bu- the, the bubble barth? The bubble barth. And, oh my mm. gosh. <laughs> Cozy. All right. That's good. Carl Barth, uh, he wrote the most elaborate and extensive work on Christian theology ever written, I think. I mean, I think you could wow. say that. It's called The Church Dogmatics. And any extreme theology nerd in church history probably has a copy of The Dogmatics. It takes... I mean, volumes. It's so thick. No way. It's so hard to read. It's so well written. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. Um, this man is a, was a genius, and he wrote about what it means to be Christian in such detail, beautifully. Um, but anyway, uh, one of my favorite things about what Karl Barth did is regularly he said, any theologian, this is a paraphrase, he would say, any theologian is... Um, is making a mistake in their work if they forget that each day to do it justice, they have to begin again at the beginning. Oh, wow. And the beginning will always be Jesus, Hmm. our Alpha and Omega. Because what sometimes you get in the habit of doing with theology is creating a foundation and then the next day building on top of that and then the next day building on top of that other one. And then all of a sudden you're layers and towers above the rock, which we're founded on. And, um, and if theology separates us from Jesus, which it can ironically, then we will have missed the point of theology in the first place. So to begin again at the beginning, It's all about Jesus. So if while you're listening to this, it feels like we're just diving into weeds and you're confused or you think, wow, I I haven't heard some of these terms before. Like, don't worry. We're not saved by our right belief. Hmm. We're saved purely by the one living Messiah who died and is resurrected for eternity, Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That's such good news. Praise God. Hmm. Wow. I think that's an introduction. Yeah, that was a good introduction. Does that work? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, Jace, do you feel like you could tell us anything about essentials? Do you want me to go into that? Um, I was, I think I have a segue. Please. So you're talking about Jesus being the foundation. And I think there's other things that need to be built out to make a proper in this case, like structure, you know, yes, we probably need some walls, a roof, maybe a door. And that's really all that is essential to a building. You know, everything on top of that is fluff and designer and up to sometimes, uh, subjection. So whether you want gutters or, um, what are those things that cover the windows? Shutters. Shutters. Mm. Um, we love, you know, what kind of carpet you want or the, you know, do you want a chimney? How big is the chimney? All those kinds of things are, I think, more non-essential, sure. less essential to the structure. And so I think in the same way, from my understanding, 
there's the the basic you we cannot compromise on these truths about being Christian when it comes to theology. Um, and then there's things that it's okay to disagree on. It's okay if mm-hmm. we don't necessarily agree on, say, whether communion is actually God's blood, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or or the, the blood in the actual body, or if it's just a reminder, or if it's physical, all those kinds of things, whether, yeah, um, yeah so I, I didn't mean to get into the non-essentials. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but that's just one example. So how, how, how do we know what is essential and what's not essential? Yeah, that's excellent. I like to think of it like instead of a binary that something falls in the essential camp or the non-essential camp, you have like a target with a bullseye and the things at the center of the target and the bullseye are the most essential things to being mm-hmm. Christian. Um, so for example... And we'll get into why these things are at the center a little bit more. But um, the nature of God is, I think any Christian would say, is pretty much indisputably right at the heart of what it means to be Christian. We believe that God is eternal, Um, always has been, always will be, maker of all things that have been made seen and unseen. Um, That we as Christians believe that that God is a triune relational being who is one and three at the same time, Hmm. father, son, and Holy spirit, which is a mystery. Um, and understanding that mystery and unpacking it isn't something we're going to do today, but, um, nothing that I could probably do well ever, but I could try. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jesus is both fully God and fully man and that he came and dwelt among us and, um, lived a perfect sinless life and was crucified, died actually, and then was actually resurrected into new life bodily so that we might have salvation through him. Um, All of these things are examples of bullseye essential doctrine. Mm, Yeah. And hopefully any Christian listening to this is thinking, yeah, I see that. Whether you're a Baptist or an Eastern Orthodox, a Roman Catholic or a non-denominational Pentecostal, um, yeah. you relate to those core essential things. And that's beautiful. It is like that's There's billions of people that actually do believe in those essential things, wow. which is like actually a really cool thing. It's yeah, good. I, I did. I heard on another podcast recently that I guess is Pew. Do they do researches? research yeah. or like um, surveys. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what Pew stands for, but I just heard Maybe in that. a Pew survey, they surveyed people that identify as Christian in the United States. One of the questions was, do you believe in God? And the response was 86% said yes. Fascinating. And so I'm like, I think there's a disconnect there from, uh, you know, that's like a core yeah. foundational thing that, I mean, we say is a bullseye thing. Like you like yeah. to, to be Christian, you have you must believe in God and His nature and and all those truths. That's good. Yeah, it reminds me of a friend that I had in college was from Europe, and he told me that he was Catholic. And then I asked him about his Catholic faith, and he corrected me and said, "Oh, I don't have faith. I'm an atheist." <laughs> and I thought, "Wait, what? You're you just told me you're Catholic. How can you be atheist?" Um, but it's true. Some people. He was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church, being European. It was a family traditional thing mm-hmm. that his family all did. Yeah. 
but it didn't have any bearing on his actual metaphysic or his sense of what is right or true in the universe. Good use of the word metaphysic. That was great. Thanks. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? I would say that if you don't believe that God exists, you fall outside of the bounds of Christian. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we could pretty definitively say that. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if there are listeners to this podcast that would even butt up against that, they're redefining Christian as something that we're not defining it as. And that is to say that it's just a culture. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just a tradition um, that you can be born into or baptized into. Um, But we would say it's something more than that. It's much more active and relational. Yeah. And theology and beliefs are a part of it, but they're definitely not all of it. And uh, maybe in a future podcast, we'll get into stuff beyond the theology, like how you practice Christianity, Mm -hmm. Um, because you could believe all the right things, but not follow Jesus. It's like Paul says that even demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Yeah. So they're not followers of Jesus, but they still believe in God's existence. Wild. Um, So is there, I mean, since the life of Jesus, there's been a few thousand years now. Mm-hmm. How, how has the church kind of defined these rules? Like what's that been, what's that look like that process throughout history? Um, because I think we can pull stuff out of scripture, but it's not rules was the wrong word. Theological mm-hmm. bullseyes. That's you good. Know? Uh, I'm glad you asked yeah. in that way. Cause the early church um, the word Trinity, for example, doesn't exist in scripture. Mm-hmm. And this, just like I said, the word Christology doesn't N- nowhere in the new Testament. Are we given a super clean and tidy unpacking of the nature of God, um, in the way that the early church wanted it. So the early church was left with all of these huge questions. Like who is Jesus? Like we worship him, but he's a man. How do I make sense of that when I'm coming from the Jewish worldview that believes there's only one God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one, was the repeated prayer of every Jew every morning and night for their whole life. How does that person go to worshiping a man? It's blasphemous. I mean, yeah. that's that's why the religious leaders ordered Jesus' crucifixion. Um, wow. And so... Anyway, there were a lot of questions, huge question marks that the early church had to wrestle with. And they solved their questions in different ways. And um, often what they tried to do was solve the mystery away by saying something like, oh, Jesus, um, he was God, uh, but he wasn't actually human because God can't take on human flesh and he can't have suffered because God can't suffer. Um, so the whole like life and death of Jesus must've just looked like life and death, but they weren't actually, um, I forget the name of that heresy. There, there was a whole host of, um, these different solutions to the big questions, um, that started coming out among thinkers in the early church. And I, I think kind of beautifully, the church at large held these questions intention and the heart of the Christian movement always allowed the mystery to prevail. Mm-hmm. Um, but in time had to put terms on it so that we could define, okay, what do we mean 
when we're worshiping Jesus. And it culminated in creeds being written. Have you ever heard the word creed? <laughs> well, I know you have because <laughs> we've been talking about it, but the listener creed yeah. is uh, basically it's like a, a statement of beliefs. We might say that today, like, oh, you go on the a church's website and you look up, well, we believe page. Mm-hmm. We have one of those at Riverhouse. Yeah. Um, the early church attempted to write out the most essential Christian beliefs in these short documents that were meant to be memorized called creeds. And even to this day, um, you know, in some cases like 1800, 1700 years later, churches still repeat these creeds every Sunday to one another. Wow. Um, Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopal brothers and sisters listening to this podcast, if there are any might know what I'm talking about. But, um, anyway, the, the, some of these creeds are like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and they appeared at different times in church history to solve different problems um, and clarify different issues with language that the Bible didn't offer. Um, and yet, even though the Bible didn't offer that language, it was still believed to be like very explicitly biblical. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Nicene Creed, which we can read yeah. right now, um, the Nicene Creed was written in 370 or 325 AD. So about 300 years after Jesus' life. Wow. So, you know, like mm-hmm. more time than the history of the United States. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Were you? Like, oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. So in that time, even though they didn't have the creed or the language about the Trinity, they still followed the Lord very faithfully. Mm-hmm. It's an example of how we're not saved by our right belief. Yeah. As much as we're saved by the blood of Christ. But um, I wish I remembered the numbers off the top of my head, but there were hundreds of leaders from around the Roman, the European church that participated in the writing of the Nicene Creed. And two of them disagreed with it something like 250 of them agreed to it. And so those two, um, you know, it was kind of like, well, you represent a perspective that isn't Christian, but that, that gives you an example of the super majority yeah. at the time that this was written that believed in it. And those were representatives from the church um, from very diverse backgrounds, you know, East to West in the Roman world, North Africa, England. Um, so anyway, should we just read it? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Maybe we read through it and then maybe kind of go break it down. You think? Yeah. Like stop yeah. occasionally. I think so. We'll get on the train and then take a few stops as we run. Yeah. Stop at a station. Yeah. church leaders in 325 AD believed was kind of bullseye Christian theology. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Right there, that would have pitted against Roman paganism, the pantheon of gods. Wow. 
that would have stood distinct, um, yeah, among a lot of worldviews. And at the time that this was written, I'll say Islam doesn't exist yet. Um, mm. Islam doesn't come around for another 300 years after the Nicene Creed. Oh, wow. Like around 600 and something AD. I didn't even know that. You didn't? Wow, that's yeah. wild. Uh, yeah, so Islam's not on the scene. Um, Judaism could agree with that first statement, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, th- you were going to say something, Jace? Uh, no, I think that was... The, I was just reading this, and we can go into this next one. Can I just read the next one, and then I'll say what I was going to say? Please. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. <laughs> Oof, that was rough for me. Yeah, um, that's... By whom all things were made. I'll throw that. Yes. Um, Praise God. So quickly, does the Nicene Creed, uh, like, say, does it like define the Trinity? Great question. Because I'm not, I don't feel like I'm not seeing the Trinity in this. Uh-huh. Wow. Good. The, the Trinity is meant to be expressed by this. Okay. Um, it doesn't use the word Trinity anywhere. Does okay. It? No, it doesn't. But that that's fine. I'm, I was just like, I was mm-hmm. like, oh wait, this is still like, I'm like, so this is where we'd probably lose, um, the Judeo world. Yes. Back then. Totally. Cause yeah. they, they just killed Jesus at this point, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so we, we now we're narrowing it down. We've narrowed out the Romans and the Ju- the Judeo world of Israel. Um, let's keep going. Let's That's uh, great. let's dwell it down yeah. into target into Christianity um, here. Uh, if I can, yeah, just please say go. one more thing before moving on. That um, that point is belabored a little bit. That Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten, not made is really mm. important to the creed writers that um, the, the primary conversation that was happening between those two people that disagreed with the Nicene Creed and the mm-hmm. other like 200 and whatever um, was whether Jesus had been made by God mm. or if he was eternally existent of God yeah, by God with God. Um, so trying to de- define those terms was confusing for them but that's this is what they landed on that jesus was not ever created but exists in eternity with Mm -hmm. the father i mean my mind immediately goes to the beginning of john in the beginning was the word and the words with god and he was there at the very beginning um so i mean i'm not i'm not disagreeing with the trinity at all (laughs) i was just like i while we were talking about that i was like oh this is interesting but let's keep going should we keep going yes um, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was in, incarnated incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand <laughs> of the Father. From thence... Thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Should I stop there? Yeah, that's good. I mean, I could say a thousand things about what you just read. But I think it's important to say 
um, Jesus's incarnation is real, that he is carnal as a man hmm. that's pointed out there yeah. um, in terms that are clear. Uh, like just above that, we had true God of true God or like actually God from mm-hmm. actual God and that he was made man through a woman named Mary. And it even points out here that she was a virgin. So uh, the the immaculate conception or the virgin birth is something mm-hmm. that the early church fathers believed was essential. Totally. Um, I know that that's for some people, a hot button theological issue that they, they can't believe in the virgin birth. And anyway, we don't have to go into it, but I just <laughs> yeah. want to point out no, that that's totally. in there. Um, and then I also like that it's grounded in history, that it says Pontius Pilate was the one who crucified him. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is an actual man who lived under a dude that we have historical record of. Oh yeah. He was very much, there according to the scriptures grounds jesus in the old testament there were some heresies that pulled jesus in the new testament away from the old testament saying that there's two different gods we're dealing with one is the god of the old testament who's this cruel wrathful god that orders for people to be killed when they don't follow his rules Mm -hmm. and then there's a new testament god that is gracious and forgiving and loving um i think it's wild that they went through that whole discussion, you know, 1700 years ago. And I still struggled with that when I came to an age where I could like kind of think for myself of Uh, like, wait a minute, this isn't making sense, you know? Yeah. And I kind of wish there was even like a teaching that I grew up in a place that taught on these creeds, you know, that kind of laid it out so cleanly and like simply for the most part. Um, because I feel like I just, I've learned things even just studying these creeds, preparing for this podcast. So that's so good. Oh, kind of cool that way. That is fun. Um, big thing. He actually died. Like you were saying before, Mm. um, was buried and then rose again. That's obviously we believe a hundred percent that he was a fully full man, fully carnal, actually died completely. And then rose and resurrected again. Yep. Yeah, I think that's probably like the bread and butter of an American Protestant Christian. They're like, I would, if someone said dwindle it down, uh-huh. I'd say you have to believe in Jesus and that he died and rose again. Like that Boom. was like that's where you'd zone in. That's where I'd zone in. Wow, that's cool. Probably because that that message is where we get our like salvation message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And salvation and where you're going after you die and who you put your faith in are so central to American Christianity. I don't know. Interesting. Just a hypothesis. No, totally. It is interesting. The the things that the American church prioritizes as the main things Mm. or like the most, like we really, we really talk about salvation a lot. Yeah. You know, and this is all more talking about who God and Jesus and the Holy spirit is and what the church does. A little bit, it's good. you know, I'm yep. like, Oh, that's really fascinating that, huh. I don't know for, I don't know. The, I don't know what to think to make of that, but just that comparison is interesting to me. I think it's important that we learn from our Christian brothers and sisters from the past. They often were swimming in a different cultural soup so they can call us out on the soup that we're swimming in that mm-hmm. we're sometimes not aware of because we're so surrounded by it. That's so good. I love that. And even just reading mere, I was not reading completely skimming through mere Christianity before this podcast as well. 
And just the way that C.S. Lewis is talking about the soup that he was in just 50 years ago, huh. I sometimes think that like so much of us, our problems now in the digital age, the post-Christian society is like so novel and his is like, Oh, it's still very much happening in the same way too. So it's like, that's good. There's just nothing new under the sun at the same time, you know, which is actually very reassuring for me. That is even like you said that that struggle of old Testament versus new Testament is a struggle that most Christians, I would say an American in the American church face at some point. Um, in some ways it's comforting to know that that struggle is not a new struggle Mm -hmm. and the Christians have had good answers for that struggle for at least 1900 years, Mm -hmm. which is great. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You love a good struggle. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. so go ahead. Were you going to say, Oh, um, just to get in the weeds a little bit, because I just want to have a little bit of fun. I did have a random question of why, I mean, we look back at the old Testament I feel like we can clearly see the Trinity at work throughout it. Do you know if there were any Jewish rabbis that kind of saw the same thing way back when? Wow. Or even without the incarnate Jesus? Like we, I feel like we see the spirit of God throughout the Old Testament and we recognize it as a separate part of the Trinity of the Godhead, but they only saw it as one God. Sorry, that's probably a super weedy question, but I was just yeah. like, do you have any thoughts on that? Shoot, I wish I did have okay. more because I know that's a conversation. Um, well, we can put a pin in it and talk about it later. That's- yeah, we could. I'll just say like really briefly that there's a lot of reason to believe that the Lord is multifaceted at least mm. in the Old Testament. Yeah. And there were, um, there were a lot of like, poetic representations of different aspects of God um, throughout the Old Testament. So like one that wasn't on my radar as much as it should have been, I think, is Proverbs chapter 8. Lady Wisdom Hmm. is described as being with God at the creation of all things. Weird. And um, what you quoted in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is simultaneously quoting Genesis one and Proverbs eight at the same time. And we talk about his quote of Genesis one way more than we realize the Proverbs eight thing, Totally. but it's because what John is trying to do is tap into the Jewish stream of recognizing that somehow mysteriously God is more than just one mind or one person. Um, but they just never went so far as to say something like we do as Christians, that he has multiple persons. Yeah. And I think that must be because Jesus came and delineated things pretty clearly when he's baptized and the Holy spirit's descending upon him. And the voice of the father is also present. It's like, Oh wow. Okay. I'm, I don't, I don't know how to make sense of God being man. If God isn't also father in heaven spiritually at the same time, Hmm. otherwise like, no one's ruling the world yeah, in that moment totally. because he's totally in the person of Jesus. Wow. Interesting. You know, so yeah. I think it just created problems, um, that pulled the Trinity into, uh, into a greater debate. You could say, Oh, the spirit of God and the wisdom of the Lord and the word of the Lord are all just 
multiple ways of speaking about the same person, mm-hmm. which is true. And the Trinitarian would agree with that. Yeah. You see, there's like this weird tension. Uh, so I think that trajectory is starting to be formed throughout the formation of scripture mm-hmm. and we can see it in Genesis one. We yeah. can see it in Proverbs. Um, but it's, it's not really hashed out. Which is fine. Yeah. You know? I mean, we, I think we like to hash things out. Yeah. And, I, and so they were probably like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a spirit. And sometimes he's a fire. Sometimes he's a wind. Sometimes yeah. he's a cloud, a pillar of cloud. That's good. Like there's all these different things. And so it's like, and they're just probably back then. It's like, yeah, for sure. Yep. Totally. And, but we're like, well, we got to logic this out a little <laughs> bit, you know? <laughs> Can I please have some answers here? Totally. They didn't have the word theology yet. No. No, I don't know when that word became a thing. Greeks, I assume. I have to imagine. I, I would also, maybe we, we could bookmark that conversation, is that there is more writing in what's called the intertestamental period, meaning after the Old Testament stopped being written and before the New Testament started being written, Jews were still writing things, mm-hmm. a lot of things. Yeah. Those things just didn't make their way into our scriptures, as Protestants, yeah. at least. Um and some of the things that were written in that time point to what sounds a lot like the Trinity before Jesus even comes on the scene. Wow. And I don't know enough about that to say mm-hmm. anything else, okay. but let's just put a no, bookmark yeah. there. All right, great. Thanks for indulging me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Back to the Nicene Creed. Wow. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we finished the father and the son section. Mm-hmm. The third section is, you... oh, actually maybe oh. I'll just say it's important to mention that not only did Jesus resurrect, but Jesus is coming again. Mm, yeah. And that there's going to be a judgment where all things are made right, where a good judge is sitting on the throne mm. and everything is restored. Um, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's a super important point to have at the center of yeah. what Christians believe. Because uh, if we don't have any future hope in resurrection and the new creation, then what are we, what are we doing? Yeah, totally. You know, mm-hmm. and Paul kind of gets at that at first, first Corinthians 15, if you want to dig in more about the resurrection, but incredible. Uh, third section on the Holy spirit. You want to read that? Sure. And in the Holy ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the father, who with the father and the son together is worshiped and glorified who spake, <laughs> I'm sorry. Old English. I know. Um, uh, well, how was that actually in New English? Who who spoke? Who spoke by the prophets? Uh-huh. Oh, uh huh. Oh, I let me read that again. Sure. Maybe you should. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you should read this. I should have printed off a better version that was in um, American. Um, <laughs> we're keeping that in. I'm so sorry. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceedeth from the Father who with the father and the son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke of by the, who spoke by the prophets. That's right. Yeah. So here, I mean, d- does that feel like the Trinity? That's to you? very Trinity. I should have read further down cool. before I said that earlier. <laughs> yeah, you're great. I'm so sorry, dear listener. Um, it still doesn't say like one God, three persons. Mm-hmm. We get that later in the Chalcedonian creed, but in this one, it, the Trinity is for sure there. Together is worshiped together. Mm-hmm. And they proceed from each other. They're like connected. True God from true God mm-hmm. proceeds from one. Like trying to have this language of they're united and yet have different like 
persons. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I don't know how no. else to say it because it's such a mystery. I love the writing. And I'm not sure if this is just this version of the creed, but the Lord and giver of life. Oh, I love that so much. Isn't that so good? I don't know if the listener, if you listener have done any of the e-courses, the deep water e-courses, which are actually being revamped. I don't know if we, yeah, yeah, they're being revamped. Uh Um, but in there, sweet Benjamin talks about, (laughs) um, he, he, he teaches on so many things, but you're teaching on the Holy spirit and how it's like all about like life and bringing, is that, I think you said like to bring life and, uh, hovering over the waters, bringing life chaotic, taking what is bad and broken and bringing it to whole. Wow. And I'm like, it was so good. It was so, so good. I don't know if you want to talk on that at all, but like, I'm glad. I just deeply loved that. Oh, you, we could talk about the spirit of the Lord for so long. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll say a couple nuggets. Yeah, please do. Spirit in Hebrew, <laughs> a couple nuggets and I go straight to an ancient language. Yeah. Um, ruach. 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 <laughs> it's one of those you have to clear your throat. Mm-hmm. Ruach. Um, so the Ruach in Hebrew it's the same word used for wind as for breath, as for spirit. All of those are the same word. Yeah. So if wind is involved in the Old Testament somewhere, that's Ruach. If um, the spirit of God proceeds from the Lord, you know, in heaven or something, Ruach. If some animal loses its breath, Ruach. Wow. Um, so I just think it's important to connect the Old Testament images um, to the spirit that are yeah. connected to the spirit. And we lose that in English because we don't think of wind as closely connected to the spirit as a Hebrew thinker would have. Wow. That's so good. And breath too. Like there's this sense that um, I think maybe it's in a different translation of the Nicene Creed or somewhere else. It doesn't just say that, the spirit is the giver of life, but he's the sustainer hmm. of life, Wow! which gives you this sense that like, just as I'm breathing and my breath is sustaining my existence, hmm. so is the spirit of God. And the only reason oh. I continue to live in this moment is because my existence is being upheld by the spirit right now. Wow! And that that's different for us because we're post enlightenment thinkers And after the enlightenment, when deism was invented, we started to think about creation like a clock where God makes a clock, he winds it, and then he walks away and it can just run itself on the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can breathe, of course, because my lungs are working and my heart is beating and my neuro pathways are formed and whatever. Sending electric signals from my brain into my nerves into all these things. Yes. And all of those things are certainly true. Mm -hmm. And, um, to take wisdom from the ancients, it is also true that the only reason anything exists is because it's actively sustained by the Lord. Oh, wow. That's so cool. That was a, that was a mind blowing paradigm shift for me. Hmm. And I think it's important to recognize that God is not some distant creator being that wants nothing to do with my day to day moments. The Lord is so near. He's actually closer than my breath. I think that's where where phrases like that come from. Mm -hmm. Because um, 
because he's everywhere. He's in Mm -hmm. everything, sustaining it all. And that's not to say that everything is God, like some kind of pantheistic, Mm -hmm. look at the tree. The tree is the Lord. That's not, that's not true. But like, but life, wherever life is, the Lord is because the Lord is sustaining that life. In the New Testament, Mm -hmm. doesn't it say about Christ, like that he's in all things? Does that, do you know if that, Am I getting into a, a big hole, but just like more yeah. like, or all things point to Christ. That's, see, that's, yeah, that's honestly, a messy, that's a messy statement too. I didn't mean to say that. I'm, I'm not remembering what you're referring to. Oh, here it is. I looked it up. It's Colossians one and I'm going to read, uh, 15 through 17. This is just really beautiful. He is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about Jesus the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible where their thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. There's more, but that, that's such a yeah. beautiful passage. And I think we see the characteristics of the spirit in there as well as Jesus, obviously, which they are also mm-hmm. two sides of the same three-sided coin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, it's so good. I'm just, I love the, even that last line, all of it. But even that last line where it says, in him, all things hold together, mm-hmm. to me, hits the point that we were just hitting on with the sustaining of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, and that's just not a way that we think. No, in the Western post enlightenment world today. And I think it's really helpful uh, and encouraging to realize that my very breath is sustained by an active God who is with me right now, that my whole life is held together by a tender and intimate Lord that is present with me. Um, there's no limit to his awareness or his presence. Hmm. Like why Jesus said, it is better for you that I go so that I might send the helper, the spirit. Oh man. That is so, I I mean, I feel his nearness right now, even just pondering that. Praise God. I feel like it brought an awareness for me just in this moment of like, whoa, like just I'm focused on my breathing, which just sounds so Uh, like, I don't know, in this modern post-Christian world, like mindfulness and meditation, but it's like, Oh, right. it's all, it's all God. And yeah. it's, he's holding it all together and woof, man, that was a, that was a good tangent. Wow. That was a good tangent. <laughs> I'm glad I finally figured out my train of thought there. Thank you. I'm glad you pulled up Colossians. That's one of the best verses, even about the nature of God. It says in there that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in whom all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hmm. So that's m- more of language that the early church fathers had to pull from to get, you know, the Trinity and the it, nature of Jesus. It's wild that that came to mind because I, in reading it, I'm like, Oh, this is, I'm he- hearing a lot of the same words that are in this creed too, which is just kind of a cool wow, well done. touch point. That wow. is amazing. I, it gives you confidence that the, the men writing this document, these words weren't just making stuff up. Totally. <laughs> they were like yeah. really grounded in scripture. Praise God. Honestly, isn't that so fun? That's so good.
just one chunk of the creed left. Do you want to read it? Sure. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Yeah. So there, like it says, amen, as an example of something that the statement of my beliefs is something that I'm meant to do regularly and meditate on it. And amen just comes from the Hebrew word emet, which means truth. Hmm. Um, So it's to declare like that's true. So, I mean, I read this and I think, well, I'm not Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Does this this mean I'm outside of the target circle again? Like, here we are. It Um, does say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So can you define that for me? We might be in tough shape. Yeah. Jay, so I'm sorry. Shoot. (laughs) No. It's probably a good time to end then. Uh, uh, Just kidding. You'll notice that whenever a Protestant church quotes that, they make the C lowercase for Catholic uh, because that word, uh, I think it's Latin. I don't know. I shouldn't throw things around like that unless I know it, but whatever it makes language it is, it was Latin. It means it would make sense, right? It means universal. Mm. So I believe in one holy universal and apostolic church. You could just plug the word universal in for the word Catholic and you would get the same sense. So what, what is being communicated there is I believe that there is a body of Christ and that we are all united by the Holy Spirit as one. Um, what word am I looking for? Ecclesia, <laughs> not to just use as a Greek one word body, one body. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you have felt this listener. If you have ever gone somewhere where you haven't felt at home, And then you met a Christian and all of a sudden you felt at home in Mm. their presence. Wow. I've had that experience a lot. Yeah. Have you, Mm -hmm. Jace? Oh, absolutely. Isn't that fun? It's really cool. I feel like that especially slaps me in the face in global travel Mm -hmm. because I'll feel like such a foreigner. Um, Maybe the first time it happened to me really loudly, I was in the United Kingdom and I felt totally like I was a fish out of water in London. And then I walked in this church called Holy Trinity Brompton. And it was like I slid into the most comfortable place because it was right at home. It felt familiar and I'd never been there before. Wow. That's so, that's beautiful. That's, that's the holy united Catholic or universal (laughs) church. I think in our spirit, like we're detecting that body. Absolutely. That's so good. Mm -hmm. Are, Are there people that would disagree with that part of the creed? Like, oh, that's a good question. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm, I yeah. feel like that's just like, that just makes sense. And I, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of this is like, well, obviously, well, <laughs> yeah. duh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they didn't put duh instead of amen, but like <laughs> is I, for so much of this is like, this is the basics, but I was like, right. oh, I wonder why that was so controversial. Yeah. I feel like my guess is it wouldn't feel controversial if the word Catholic wasn't involved. Okay. If it was just we believe in one church Mm -hmm. and we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of like, does that rub you the wrong way? If we say that, no, not at all. Um, like church with a capital C I'm thinking different hearers are maybe, um, interpreting that differently. Like if you're really narrow in your beliefs, you might think that the church is just your particular sect of your particular denomination. Yeah. Um, but even in that case, you still believe in one church that's united. I thought, that's pretty rare. 
it's pretty rare. Okay. I think I think what this is just talking about is like I believe that there is a body of Christ that is expansive and united in His mm. Spirit. We don't talk about that much, especially because, I mean, tragically, we're not very united now in practice and in structure, in system, in uh, in leadership. You know, like, mm-hmm. but at least since studying more about theology, I definitely try to look at my Catholic brothers and sisters or my Orthodox brothers and sisters as a part of my same body. Yeah. Um, and to not hold judgment against them any more than I would the person who sits in the seat next to me at church. That's really good. Um, and where I do hold judgment against them, like heaven help me because who am I to judge my own brothers and sisters that just live in a different culture or a different church practice than me? And nobody's perfect, of course. And that's where we could start to get into the fringe of what is not essential now mm-hmm. about Christianity yeah. and where we disagree. But um, I think we would look a lot more like Jesus if we lived into the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, where all of the church would be united, even as he is united in the Father. You know? Yes. Come on, um, Jesus. And I think that's what the Nicene Creed's getting after. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so good. Do you feel like we need, before we get into some of the unessential things, acknowledge one baptism? That's pretty straightforward, yeah? Yes, I I think so. Okay, great. I mean, you could probably go down a big rabbit trail about totally. people who get rebaptized, baptized mm-hmm. um, or get baptized multiple times. But I, I don't I don't think okay. that's actually what this is talking about. That's fine. It's just talking about like one one entrance into Christ where I am dead to my old self and born again. That only happens once. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we could have the baptism conversation <laughs> another day. Yeah. So I guess what moving forward, like what do you feel like are some of those things outside of if we're looking at like a target, mm-hmm. we've kind of touched on all the, these are the most essential of essential, you know, these really separate Christian from non-Christian. Is that the right way to say that? Um, and so now like there's other, there's other hot topics within the church, but just because you might believe one or the other doesn't mean you're outside of the body. Right. Just means we have grace for that. Amen. Or are ought to have grace or yeah, Yeah. we should have grace for that. We really should. (laughs) I think so. Oh man. Churches have divided over a lot of things, which is, again, I think tragic and contradictory to the New Testament's will for the church and the Lord's will yeah. for the church. But I'll just name a few things mm-hmm. like um, one of the first major schisms called the Great Schism that happened about a thousand AD, I forget the exact year, was a, an issue of leadership. I think it was an issue of hubris. Like uh, earlier in the church, there were there was a leadership structure. You had bishops and archbishops, and the archbishop of Rome was one of a handful of other like high leaders, and um, power wasn't centralized as much. Um, but in time. Uh, the Archbishop of Rome started to think of himself as um, more of an absolute authority over 
his other, other archbishops mm-hmm. um, that existed in other cities like Alexandria and Antioch and Jerusalem. Um, and But there was also cultural divides that split people. So um, the East and West divide is the simplest way of doing it. And it's almost actually exactly down the line of where the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire split, if you're familiar with Western, like mm-hmm. with European history. Yeah. Um, so the Byzantine Empire, which had its hub in Constantinople, mm-hmm. became the hub of the Eastern Church. Um, so that's what we now call Eastern Orthodoxy. The Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, all flow out of that. Wow. Um, and the Western church is what we'd now call the Roman Catholic church with its hub in Rome, mm-hmm. um, with authority given to the Pope. Um, so that was a cultural and a leadership debate. It wasn't even a theological one as much. Quick history question. Was the great schism, the differentiating point between Catholic and Protestant, or was that later on? Oh, great question. No, that's later on. Okay. Protestants aren't on the scene for another 500 years. Okay. Um, but yeah, Great Schism is just East to West. So mm-hmm. at that point, it's just Orthodox and Catholic. Okay. Or East Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic. And that all had to do with leadership. Basically. But that like split half, like the church in half. Yeah, totally. For the first, that was the first major devastating split of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it took a thousand years for that to happen. That's wild. Because I think you look even in the past 200 years of uh, American church history, mm-hmm. like how many splits have there been of different yeah. denominations and i feel like i hear every couple of years of like oh the methodists are trying to like see if they want to split off and like start a new version of yeah. all these kind of different things so not to pick on the methodists but like that's hard that's like it's mm-hmm. it's sad that i feel like it has grown the schisms have become more exponential for like the yeah. first thousand years like one church that's like so cool Isn't that beautiful it's beautiful yeah and the Nicene Creed is a product of that one united church, which mm-hmm. is beautiful. It's a gift. In spite of differences, and I would say like church history is messier than I'm making it sound right now. Um, there were like, like the Ethiopian church wasn't ever really super involved or communicative with the European mm-hmm. church. But a, a lot of that had to do with culture and communication was just yeah. difficult. You know, um, when Christianity spread, it, uh, but for the most part, it maintained its structure. I also think that you could probably critique um, modern Western, like fear of authority. Hmm. Like we don't want to submit; we want to do our own thing. Yeah, and also sure. entrepreneurialism. It's like we're a very capitalistic culture, mm-hmm. and it's entrepreneurial for us to go and start our own church because we go and start our own business, and that's like what oh, we do in America. Yeah, um, that's such good insight. I did not think about that. I I read it from someone smarter than me, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that the ancient church could critique us on in America. Yeah, for sure. Um, but anyway, all that saying, uh, leadership culture, and then about 500 years later, the, um, the the reformation is what we call it. That's yeah. I, that's where the Protestants come on. That was on multiple choice. I would have, pick that out. <laughs> but in this sense, I was distracted and yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's good. Um, I'm glad you, yeah, even thought about it because bringing it up 
I think highlights that we as Westerners forget that the Eastern church even exists, mm-hmm. which is just silly of us and kind of ignorant because there's so many Christians that call themselves Eastern Orthodox. But anyway, we won't go down that rabbit trail. Yeah. Um, they have so many things to teach the rest of us. Uh, but uh, in the 1500s, there had been a lot of movers and shakers and all, almost all of them had been killed and burned at the stake by the Catholic church for doing things that they weren't supposed to do. Hmm. For example, a guy named Wycliffe was one of the first to translate the Bible into not Latin mm-hmm. <laughs> English or William Tyndale. Yeah. Um, both of whom were killed for translating the Bible against the will of the Roman Catholic church. So That's there's an example crazy. of like some gnarly things yeah. that church authority was doing. And that's not even to mention things like the crusades and mm-hmm. indulgences, which were a hot button topic for the reformation. And mm-hmm. one that was the straw that broke the camel's back for Martin Luther. Um, sorry, I just rushed ahead. To no, something. that was good. I, the one thing I, I just find interesting now because the Roman Catholics also, use the Nicene Creed in their liturgy, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's interesting that the Nicene Creed has survived huh. these different schisms. Yes. Wow. You that's know? beautiful. Like that's actually really cool. It kind of shows that like even how va- that the validity of it, you know, it's good. Like at no point in any of the breaking has someone like validly called Christian disagreed with a creed or rewritten it. Mm hmm. Um, I think there were a, a couple attempts at rewriting, but they were almost always quickly squashed. Wow. That's um, really cool. What happened in the Reformation is that they started getting more nitpicky. And guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, if you've heard any of those names, they start writing catechisms. Have you ever heard of a catechism before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's basically like a creed on steroids, like maximized. <laughs> and those catechisms are notorious for going into really great theology, but a lot of it starts to fringe on the edge of non-essential theology. Mm-hmm. So they'll tell you what the Eucharist is or what the Lord's Supper is, that it mm-hmm. isn't actually Jesus's body and blood, which mm-hmm. the church believed that it was actually Jesus's body and blood yeah. in a literal form until the Protestant Reformation. Um, but again, also in a, like a mystical form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the different reformers had different solutions for that. And that was part of why they broke. And and I mean, a little bit to kind of our first point is like, they spent years of their lives nitpicking so many things, um, kind of moving away from the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Interesting. Yeah. Not to and, say that they didn't weren't doing good things. Yeah. But it's just like, I'm just like, oh, wow, to like, to expand, let's say the Nicene Creed to its hundredth degree and go into such great detail is yeah. too almost overcomplicated. Wow. That's a good insight. I think you're right. They started to almost worship their interpretation hmm. of scripture and theology. And that became such a delineating factor that like, if you don't agree with this catechism, then holy wars started to happen. You had all these religious wars and people were actually killed for being on the wrong side of a Christian debate all within. I mean, it's a Cain and Abel situation. It's like, these are brothers and they're killing each other for senseless reasons. Um, and that's, that's like a 
deeply shameful aspect of Christian history, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, but I, w- I might also say that the reformers in their defense were, they were doing theology to try and reform the Catholic church. They weren't trying to rebel against mm-hmm. the Catholic church, at least originally. Yeah. They were trying to correct it. Because um, at that point it had gotten to a point that was, this is not good. Yeah. There's a lot of things happening that are not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were some like questionable beliefs, purgatory, for example. Um, the biggest one that I brought up briefly a minute ago was indulgences, mm-hmm. whether you could pay the Catholic church to get someone out of purgatory quicker, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I mean, that's a kind of a crass way of saying it, but that's basically yeah. what it was. Um, that if you donated enough money to the Catholic church, your loved ones who had gone on to death before you would go into heaven faster. That's crazy. Uh, that like TSA pre-check. That's just what it is for the eternal life. For the eternal life. Shoot. And that's, yeah. Anyway, there's some obvious problems there. Yeah. There's sure. a, a lot of power tripping and a lot mm-hmm. of issues. I mean, no one was allowed to read the scriptures in their own language. Mm-hmm. At that time, the scriptures were only in Latin and only the priests had access to it. And at that time, like Gutenberg was getting close and the printing press was on its way. And um, people wanted access to the scriptures in their own language. They didn't want to have to go through a priest in order to have a relationship with the Lord. Totally. Um, and all of those things are super valid. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's, there's issues with the Catholic church. So, um, but that's not to say that every church isn't without some issue. I, I love a lot of things about the Catholic mm-hmm. church. They're not the enemy, but they were doing some wrong things. I think one thing might, that might be good to maybe wrap this up a little bit is to touch on this mm-hmm. kind of this idea of how do we move forward in unity as a church, like as believers, just to make it a little bit more practical. Yeah. Um, I think at least even for me, it's like, how do I approach either conversations or, or whatever with people with grace? It's a great question. I, yeah, well, you, you can tell that the momentum of this conversation, I feel like is big enough that we could keep talking for hours and, uh, we I mean, we can, that. if you want, we can, uh, why not go three hours if you want? <laughs> We're only at the reformation. There's a lot more right. to go, go for. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But I think, um, like coming back to what we said at the beginning is so important that, um, we're not saved by all of these nuances. We're saved by Jesus and mm-hmm. Jesus is a person. He's not a belief. He's not a theology. Jesus is a person who knows us individually and intimately um a god who put on flesh so that he could relate to us and then take our place like that that is essential yeah more than anything that's so you know Mm -hmm. that's beautiful and where we lose sight of that and start to nitpick judgments about oh well I believe that baptism as an infant is the only legitimate baptism because yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Or, well, I believe believer baptism, like you would have had to have made the decision for yourself because yada, yada. Um, I think that those conversations can be helpful and they should be had, but where they separate us or create spaces of judgment between us, Mm. um, we've like, We've gone too far. Yeah. 
so there's just this nice phrase that someone invented. I don't know who they say in essentials, we should have unity in non-essentials. There should be liberty and in all things love. So whether you find another thing is that sometimes you could debate what is essential and what is not essential. Mm -hmm. Like in American conversation, the LGBTQ conversation is a big one. Yeah. And, um, it's important, I think, to have an opinion on that that you think is really grounded in scripture and people grounded in scripture will land in different places. Mm -hmm. And regardless, uh, we need to love one another. Yeah. Um, if at any point love is compromised, um, then I think truth is also compromised. Sometimes we say, oh. I am compromising love for the sake of truth. I don't know that that's ever possible. I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a big I, claim. I, I think you're on the right track because who are we supposed to be like that encompasses both all truth and all love? Right. It's Christ. Right. And so if like he can do it. We can do it too, or are to aim for that, right. you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And at the end, only Christ, the one who does truth and love at the same time perfectly, is the judge. Hmm. Yeah. I don't have authority to make up, you know, make up my mind about who gets to go to heaven and hell and why, and yeah. you know, what is the right way to do this or that um, in the way that Jesus does. And I trust that he handles that seat of judgment far better than anyone else ever could, especially mm. me. So I take confidence in him. And because of that, I take confidence in the mess of these theological conversations. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. That's really good. I think that's probably a good place to end for today. I, I think it's a good place to end. So uh, yeah, well we can continue in different ways in the future. I don't know what it'll look like, but, um, hopefully this has given you listener a sense of what is Christian, what is not. And if you hear someone preaching a certain thing, um, uh, yeah, dive into it and see if it would align with something like the Nicene Creed. And if not, then you probably can't call it Christian, but if so, then you should call it Christian and remember that those people are your brothers and sisters. Mm. Um, like for our own context Pentecostals who love the movement of the spirit and cessationists who say it's over like it's easy to get really judgmental um, and forget that those people on the other side of that conversation are our brothers and sisters whom we co-labor with Christ alongside yes and um, it just doesn't do any good for an Anglican to hate on a Presbyterian or yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? For Riverhouse to hate on any other church in the Valley that Absolutely. is following Christ to the best of their ability. Mm -mm. Amen. Hmm. That's so good. Hmm. Well, well, thank you for listening. Thanks for sticking in there with us through the weeds. We mm -hmm. hope that this conversation has been helpful and uh, maybe even enlightening to you. We pray that it, it brings you closer to Jesus, if nothing else. And if you would like, feel free to join us on Sundays at 4 p.m. for our worship services. Um, and yeah, tune in every week for another adventure with 
Jason Benjamin on Come the Deep on. Waters podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Love you all. Talk to you later.